Okay, it only but a goodie. A guy goes to the uh, therapist and he, he says, uh, Doctor, I don't know if you do dream interpretation, but uh, I've been having a recurring dream. Every single night, uh, I dream that I'm a teepee. And then I fall back asleep. Come on in. And then I have another dream where I dream that I'm a wigwam. And then I fall back asleep and I dream I'm a teepee. And I dream that I'm a wigwam. And then I'm a teepee. And then I'm a wigwam. The doctor says, well, it's very simple. You're two tents. <laughs> You're two tents. Two tents. Okay. Two tents. All right. So, I'd have to roll out such a corny joke. Because this week's Parsha has two dreams. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has two dreams. One dream is about the cows, skinny cows eating fat cows. Another dream is about the stalks of corn. Scrawny ones or skinny ones devouring the robust ones. And it says the reason that he had two dreams, well, Yasef interprets it for him, is to tell you it's going to happen quickly. That's why, so it's a double dream to tell you it's going to happen quickly. Now, here's the thing. Last week, we also had two dreams. One person having two dreams. I know there was another two dreams. There was the butler and the baker each had a dream, but that was two people having a dream each, so that's two from two two dreams total from two people. But there was one person who had two dreams. Last week, one person had two dreams. Yosef. Yosef had two dreams. How did the whole thing start? That he dreamed about bundling bundles of grain out in the field. He and his brothers working out in the field. And that all their bundles bowed down to his bundle. And then he dreamed about how the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him. So he also had two dreams. Funny thing is that when Pharaoh has two dreams, we need an explanation. Why two? Why two dreams? Why not one dream? When Yosef has two dreams, okay, so he just had two dreams. We need to understand that. In addition, the question is, we always look for a connection, like the Shalah Kodesh says, that the Parsha of the week connects to the time of the year, and vice versa. So what is our Hanukkah connection from the Parsha, and specifically this idea of the double dreams of Parai and of Yosef? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story. A little parable. It's a story that never happened, but but it's so it's so good, it's worth telling. The story is about you're going to see very quickly why it never happened, because um, they're talk well there are talking animals in the story, but you're going to see that right away from the very beginning. All right. So once upon a time, there was a goat, and the goat was crying, and the owl, who was the wisest of the animals, he saw the goat crying. He says, uh, "Goat, why are you crying?" The goat says, because I hear everybody talking about the stars, about how beautiful the stars are, and I have never seen stars, because I'm built like this. I'm hunched over, four feet on the ground, and as much as I lift up my head, I can't get an angle to be able to see stars. 
So I hear about the stars, and I've never experienced them, and I'm, that's why I'm crunk. So the owl says, all right, go. We're going to work on this together. We're going to do neck stretching exercises, and we're going to get you able to see the stars. So they start working this regimen, stretching. Every night they would stretch and stretch. And finally, after a month, the goat is flexible enough. This is the fateful night where he's going to see the stars for the first time in his life. And they go off <coughs> into a little clearing in the middle of the forest. And uh, it's a clear night. No clouds, no nothing. And uh, one, two, three. And the goat... Uh, and he, he finally he gets his neck tilted back enough. And he's looking right up at the stars... And then he looks back down, and he starts to walk off. Doesn't even comment. He just starts walking off. So the owl comes flying behind him. And he's like, hey, goat, how was it? And the goat says, eh, it's okay. The owl says, well, hold on a second, goat. What do you mean it's okay? We prepared for this for a month. You wanted to see the stars, and now we saw the stars. A little, you know, a little reaction here, goat. The goat shrugs, and he's like, I told you, it's okay. The owl says, go, what do you mean it's just okay? The goat says, owl, everyone was talking about the stars, the stars, the stars. I assumed the stars are something really special. They're pretty, but you can't eat them. <laughs> That was the big disappointment of the goat. He heard people saying they were, ra they were raving about stars. So what does the goat assume? People are raving about stars. They must be really yummy, right? Because for a goat, you put everything in your mouth, you chew it up, you eat it, right? So he sees these beautiful stars. He's looking at them. He <laughs> can't bite them. So then what's the point of the stars? As I said, it's a parable. What's the point of the parable? The parable is about materialism. Materialism does not mean, as the common misconception, conspicuous consumption. You don't have to have the newest car, the newest clothes, the newest styles. Conspicuous consumption is one of the symptoms of materialism, but materialism is deeper than that. <coughs> materialism simply is a worldview which places primary or sometimes exclu exclusive emphasis on the material on physical reality. So that only that which is tangible, physical, is deemed worthy. Whereas abstraction, that which is you can't touch, that which you can't experience with the five senses, that, that which you, you need to imagine in order to experience, that's considered completely um, worthless. That's materialism. There is a worldview that goes back to ancient Greek times called Epicureanism. And it was founded by a guy named Epicurus. And from this we derive the rabbinical term for a heretic, Apicurus. Who was Epicurus and what was Epicureanism? <coughs> Very simple. He said, 
Don't fear God. Don't fear death. Live for today. If it feels good, it's right. If it feels bad, it's wrong. He was a hedonist. Beshita. That was his ideology. He believed in that. And he was a deep philosopher. He could explain to you why that was so. And of course, that influence, that ideology's influence on Jews um, was took form as a denial in the fact that there is anything beyond the physical reality and therefore, you know, eat, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, just live it up in this world and that's all there is. Materialism is the worldview that this world is all there is. Which is fundamentally antithetical to the Jewish worldview, which is this world is the tip of the iceberg. The physical world, what we call, the philosophers call the phenomenological universe, the world in which stuff takes place, is the tip of the iceberg. What does that mean? <coughs> There's a story that the Friedrich Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Rayatz, when he was being persecuted by the communists. He was arrested on several occasions, he was interrogated, and during one particular incident where he was being uh, interrogated by the, uh, the KGB, who were masters at psychological torment, uh, they were frustrated with him because they saw he wasn't getting flustered. They were masters at breaking people down. And he wasn't, he wasn't uh, buckling. So one of them pulled out a gun, a revolver, and he started brandishing the revolver. And he said to the Friedrich Rebbe, this little toy has been known to make people talk. And the Friedrich Rebbe said, that little toy is effective on people who have one world and many gods. But I have one God and two worlds. What does that mean? People who have one world and many gods means materialism. There's only one reality, the empirical. By the way, science is a gift. Hashem sent us the scientific method so we could discover more about how the universe around us works. It's a beautiful thing. The corruption of science is that people assumed that it's the only tool for knowing truth. And therefore, what happened is, people will only assume something is true if you can test it scientifically, which means the scientific method means empirical. It means if you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can experience it with your five senses, then it's real. So what happened is, instead of understanding that the scientific method is a method for one way of knowing one kind of truth, it became enshrined as the only way of knowing truth. So therefore, the only thing that's true is something I can touch and taste and feel and see and which negates the entire notion of a reality beyond the physical. So materialism has one world. I want to tell you something. Stephen Hawking did a very evil thing. Besides for the fact that he used his political clout as an as a academic celebrity to boycott Israel. He said a terrible thing. He came out with a proclamation. He said there is no heaven. 
and he knew that people would believe him because he's a genius, or he was a genius, and he was the expert, the top expert in his field. But you know why that, that was an evil thing to do? Because it was disingenuous. He was an expert in the physical universe. Now, first of all, it's a little bit... It's a, little bit of a, it's a little bit arrogant to say, don't worry, we checked out the whole physical universe, there's no heaven. Like, okay, but second, of, but second of all, does he think that I think, or other religious people think, that heaven is a physical location? That it's in the physical universe? Stephen Hawking is an expert in the physical universe. Okay, but I don't think that heaven was a planet. It's a different dimension, it's a different reality, it's a spiritual reality. So his expertise in the physical world doesn't qualify him to make any proclamations about spiritual realities. So that's the point. Materialism is like the goat who says, oh, they're pretty, but you can't eat them. Unless it's something physical, I have no value for it. Judaism comes and says, there's no such thing. What are you talking about? I have one God and I have two worlds. Two worlds means that there are two realities operating simultaneously. And this is what the Rebbe explained when he told the story about the Friedrich Rebbe, <coughs> very boldly saying, I have one God in two worlds. The Rebbe explained what that means. It doesn't mean, I don't, I'm not afraid if you kill me, because if you kill me, I'll leave this world, I'll go to the next world. That's not what it means. I have two worlds means right now. Right now I have two worlds. It doesn't just mean I'm not afraid of death because I believe in an afterlife. That's not what it means. It means at this very moment, what you are looking at is the tip of the iceberg. It's a facade. It's the very, very outer shell of reality. But there's so much more depth. There's so much more happening, even at this very moment, that you can't see. Now, who are the, who are the communists? The communists were Marxists. What is Marxism? Marx didn't call his belief Marxism. He called it dialectical materialism. Dialectical materialism is the belief that economics, the division of resources, money, runs all of history. And that all of history is basically people fighting over and competing over resources. And the ultimate resolution of all problems will be when you divvy up the resources properly. And that's why for the Marxist, and Marx did say this, religion is the opiate of the masses. Because if you think about religion, if you think about spiritual reality, that, well, he won't call it a spiritual reality. If you think about spirituality, it's an opiate. It's, it's, it's distracting you from the only reality. The only reality is the physical reality. So the only thing that matters is the divvying up physical resources, and you're going to distract someone from that and to talk about spirituality from a Marxist point of view? That's why they were atheists. So for the previous rabbit to say to this communist, I have two worlds, and what he meant, two worlds right now, that was the most anti-Marxist statement that he could make, and what it was is fundamental Judaism. Judaism is two worlds at once. Everything that happens, every experience we have, is operating simultaneously on two planes, the material and the spiritual. A guy once said to me, he's like, you know, I also speak. I, I was speaking somewhere, I don't want to say where, but I was speaking somewhere, and he came up to me after my talk, and he's like, you know, I'm also a speaker. He says, uh, but I speak about whatever it was. He, like a professional topic. So he says, and I'll tell you what I tell my rabbi. That you speak about spirituality. I speak about reality. I said, you shouldn't really say that, because that's very un-Jewish. You're implying that spirituality is something other than reality. 
there are two aspects of reality. There's the material aspect. We don't, we don't, we're not Buddhists, God forbid. We don't think that the, the physical world is an illusion. The physical world is real, but that's one aspect of reality. And then there's the spiritual aspect of reality. So they're both reality. Oh, oh and by the way, which one is primary? The spiritual one, right? So at any rate, this is the answer to the question. When Padre has two dreams, we have to ask, why is he having two dreams? Why two dreams? Why not one? When Yosef, when a Jew has two dreams, it's not two dreams, it's one dream. He had one dream, one message. The message was that he was going to become ruler over his brothers and over the world. But that one message, that one dream, was depicted on two levels. First, bundling bundles of grain out in the field, a physical symbolism for the message. And the second version of it was the sun and the stars and the moon to represent the celestial beings, the heavenly bodies, a higher reality. Because everything in a Jew's life takes place on a lower plane and a higher plane. It's not two different messages. It's one message on two levels. That's with everything in Judaism. It's a famous story, I'll tell quickly, that the Divrechayim, the Tzanzarov, who was a Paisik, he used to answer many chuvas, many rabbinical responsa, and he had such a quick mind, what he used to do is he would answer the previous letter while he was reading the next letter. So he would be doing two letters at once. <laughs> and once he was doing one letter at a time. One particular letter, he was only reading that letter and only answering that letter. He wasn't double. He wasn't uh, doing double duty. So his sons saw him and they said, why, why, you know, Manishtana, what's different? So he says, well, I'll tell you why. Right now I'm corresponding with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which the Tzanzarov's contemporary was the Tzamach Tzedek, who was also a Paisik, a halachic uh, codifier. He says, and when I'm writing with the Tzamach Tzedek, um, ostensibly we're having a discussion about halacha, the, you know, the halachic uh, correspondences. But at the same time, we're also discussing Kabbalah. Because everything we're discussing in the technical halachic realm also has its parallel in the spiritual realms. So I am doing two letters. Two letters in one letter. So that's why Yesus... With Pare, we have to explain why two dreams. With Yasef, you don't have to explain two dreams. It wasn't two dreams. One dream, two versions of the dream. Just like a Jew's life. It's one life, two levels, two parallel levels, spiritual and material simultaneously. And that's the connection to Hanukkah. We mentioned Epicureanism, which was an ancient Greek belief. What did the Greeks hate? They hated that we attributed spiritual qualities to material things. In other words, what was the Shemin Taher? What was the pure oil in the Beis HaMikdush? It wasn't extra virgin olive oil. That wasn't the Vart. It wasn't a certain grade of physical purity. Shemin Tommy and Shemin Taher? If you would send them to a lab and you would ask, analyze this oil, tell me if there's a physical difference between them. There is no physical difference. That was the point. When the Greeks came and they defiled the oil, they wanted to make a statement. Look, it's the same oil. And we insisted, and we said, no, it's not enough that it's physically the same oil. It wasn't the first drops. <coughs> yeah, but all of it was first drop oil. That, that's a good question. It was a certain grade physically. But all of that, of all of that 
oil was, which was of that physical grade, what was the difference between the ones that we wanted to use and the ones we didn't want to use? Only a spiritual difference, whether it was ritually defiled or not. So the Greek statement was, there's no difference, it's physical stuff. It's physical oil. If it's physically good, use it. And the Greeks were hedonists, and they were into physical fitness for its own sake, which is why we eat jelly donuts, so that we won't look, we won't look like Greeks. Right? But the Jewish worldview is, no, it can't just be physical. Even a physical thing, like physical olive oil, it's not just about, well, uh, it'll burn, it'll make light. No, it has to be spiritually the right type of oil, and that's why the, the ritual purity status of the oil mattered so much to the Jews. And finally, that is the reason why we give Hanukkah gelt. Why do we give money to children? I don't mean the chocolate gelt with the foil. Why do we give money to children? The Rabbim says that when the, 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 uh, the Greeks were oppressing the Jews, one of the things they did is, is they, they, the Rambam writes, Yisrael. they set forth their hands upon the Jewish wealth. Lubavitcher Rebbe asks, what, what's with this poetic language? If they stole it, say they stole it. Why they stretched forth their hands upon Jewish wealth? So the Rebbe says, on a deeper level, what it means, the Rambam is implying, stretch forth their hands upon Jewish wealth is similar to Timokol Shmonim. They've defiled all the oil. Defiling the oil didn't mean they stole the oil, didn't mean they vandalized it, not, not in the physical sense. It meant that they touched it and they made it spiritually impure. So too, they stretched forth their hand upon Jewish wealth. doesn't have to mean that they confiscated Jewish wealth. It could mean they left the Jews to have their wealth, but they said, because we are the dominant culture and we're Hellenizing you, we want you to have your wealth, but use it with a Greek touch. In other words, if you have money, spend it on nice things. Don't try to elevate it and make it spiritual. Spiritual and physical, those are different things. And we insisted, and we said, no. If we have material wealth, we have to use it for spiritual goals. Because for a Jew, material and spiritual have to coincide in everything. And that's what we fought for. And in order to celebrate that we... We're victorious. What do we do? We take something material, the most material thing there is. We take money, we give it to a child, and we say, and now you have a teachable moment. You figure out how much is meiser, how much is chaymish, where do you want to give the tzedakah? Now the, the, the 90 or 80% that's left over for you, what are you going to buy with it? What are you going to do? Are you going to buy candy? Are you going to buy svarim? And the whole thing becomes a teachable moment where you realize money, the physicality, can't just remain physicality. Physicality has to be transformed into something of, of spiritual value, because that's the life of a Jew, the physical and the spiritual coinciding together. That's the lesson of Hanukkah, that's the two dreams of Yosef, and that's, that's Judaism all year round. Two worlds at all times, two planes of existence, coinciding in everything that we do.